Revelation chapter 20. We're coming to the magnificent end of a magnificent book. Thankfully, the, the end <laughs> just has continues to build on all that has come before it in terms of the awe that it inspires and the joy that it creates, the fear of the Lord that it's meant to induce. So we have much to look forward to even in these final chapters of Revelation. This morning, we're going to be reading just verses 11 through 15 because there's plenty there to capture our attention and our focus this morning. Revelation Chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. And, and let's, let's remember, let's remind ourselves again that this is God's Word. So whatever news we've been listening to this week, whatever book we've read, whatever proverb we quoted to our child that we got from our grandmother, whatever piece of information, news, advice, counsel that we have heard or given this week, this Word is high above them all. It shapes and conforms them all. It's demands the submission and conformity of them all. So let's read it with that expectation. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. I am not a, a sailor or a boat goer of any significant stripe at all, but I, I want to try to describe a maritime image to get us started this morning, okay? So I want you to try to imagine in your mind choppy waters, a dark sky clouded over, and a small boat headed towards the rocks when the beam of a lighthouse shines on those waters and on that boat and illuminates its way towards safe harbor, I, I can only imagine, especially in some of the older days where there was no radio equipment, so on and so forth, that, that those lighthouses were, were truly beacons of hope for some of those sailors. That as they came into that shore, knowing that if they didn't choose the right path, if they didn't go the right direction, these choppy waters and waves and surf and rocks meant death. It meant devastation. When that light shone for them, it, it changed everything. It illuminated everything else. It, it took a, a stormy and dangerous situation and, and turned it into something that could be hopeful, could be illuminated and clear. But, well, we as human beings are that boat. We live in the choppy waters of a fallen world, and we are headed towards an eternity that has for many of us great, great danger, for all of us great danger when we are born. And as we're on those choppy waters, if we can extend the metaphor, but we keep hearing all these conflicting reports about the right way to go. Turn right, turn left, go around, back up, go forward, think this way, think that way. This is important, this isn't important, that's old school, that's archaic, we've moved beyond that. You should be this, you should be that, you should be whatever you want to be. We hear those voices crackling over the radio of human opinion and even our own thoughts, and we need the light of God's eternal throne. This scene 
which encompasses many of the themes that have come before in Revelation, but has a certain climactic finality to it. This throne, which we said all the way back in chapter 4, is a dominant image in the book of Revelation. From this throne, God's purpose and plan for all of human history is unleashed. God's saving redemption is revealed. God's judgment against the sinful humanity is exposed is declared, this throne is meant to be the perspective with which we live our lives. Such that we could even say, I I don't care what the voice is telling me over this crackly radio, I'm looking at the perspective I need. And this throne is the perspective we need. We're meant to live life conscious of the light of God's throne. We're meant to live in light of God's eternal throne. Parents are meant to parent that way. Men are meant to live that way. Women are meant to live that way. Senior saints are meant to go towards death with this throne in view. Young people, teenagers, children are meant to live their days and do their school and relate to their parents in light of this throne. This throne is the light that is meant to give us clarity on our life in the choppy waters of our life such that we can ignore any voice that contradicts this light, this throne. So let's walk through this passage that <laughs> talks about the, the culminating moment of this throne's judgment. We're going we're gonna to walk through it with five images. There's basically five symbols that are very important for us to understand. The, the throne, the crowd, the books, the book of life, and the lake of fire. All right, five symbols. We'll just walk through the passage using those as our guide. The throne... The crowd, the books, the book of life, and the lake of fire. And all throughout, our hope is to keep your eyes on the reality that this throne in its final judgment moment reveals about our daily lives. All right, first of all, the throne. Let's look at the throne itself. John writes that he saw a great white throne. White, the color white throughout Revelation is meant to be a symbol of purity, of righteousness, of moral uprightness. So this is not a throne that can be bribed. It's not a throne of questionable moral character. This is an absolutely righteous and just throne. There there is nothing that escapes the rightness and the purity of this throne. There's no bribery. There's no corruption. This is a morally pure throne. That's what John is saying. And John sees him who is seated on it. This would call to mind that great vision in chapter 4 where he sees the glory of God on display in a throne that indicates his absolute supremacy over all other thrones. This is a great white throne. It's meant meant to indicate the absolute minuscule nature of all other thrones on this age. It's meant to indicate, again, this is a throne above all thrones. This is a dominion above all dominions. This is an authority above all authorities. There is no appeal over this throne. There is no Supreme Court that can contradict this throne. This is God in his absolute supremacy over all creation and all time. This is that throne. And so great is this revelation of this throne and the one seated on it that it says, if you look down at your your Bibles, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This seems to be the, the climactic moment of what we've seen again and again and again in different pictures in Revelation where this earth itself comes undone. It comes uncreated. This cursed earth that was cursed because of Adam's sin comes undone in a way. We've seen stars falling and the sun blackened. And, and here's another symbolic reference to this where there is, there is no place for it to hide. It, it flees from the sheer awesome greatness of the power of this throne, the supremacy of this throne, even the, you notice the stability of this throne compared to things that we think of as stable. That's that's part of what John is saying symbolically here. Earth and sky, surely we think of as stable. You, You don't wonder most of the time whether what you step on will be there when you complete your step. You don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I wonder if the sky will be out there when I come outside this morning. No, it's, it's stable. Your lifetime has seen it stable, but not compared to this throne. This world, in all of its long-lasting stability, it is a thing of temporariness 
compared to the throne of God. The, the majesty of the mountains, the depths of the oceans, the inexhaustible limits of space are, are something that flees away in comparison to the throne of God. The, the point he's making is God is what is central. God is the ultimate reality. God's throne is the ultimate overwhelming reality of existence. And all of this universe is, is, is merely a plaything to God, a thing of his fingers, handiwork, the Bible calls it. So when it flees away, it's, it's meant to say that there, there is no longer any stability in this cursed earth. There is only God There is no longer any concealment. There is no longer any lies. No longer crackling voices that tell you that something else is more central, more important, that distracts you from this. There is the reality that has always been the center. There is God and his throne. And earth and sky and all of its false refuges from God flee away from him. But no place can be found because his gaze and his sovereignty is so all-pervasive. There is nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go. There is only God. In the end, all of existence comes down to God and God alone. That's the throne. Move to the next image, the crowd. The crowd, John says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. So there has been now the final resurrection that we hear about in various places in Scripture where the righteous and the unrighteous are raised to life physically and they are standing now before this throne without any concealment of any mountains you can read about in Isaiah when the day of the, the, of the Lord comes. There's a longing for the mountains to cover them from the face of God. But there is no covering because the earth itself is trembling and fleeing as it were before the face of God. So here all the dead, those dead for thousands of years, those dead recently, all of the dead. The apparent sense here is that all of humanity is standing before God. We, we find out later that this, this dead includes everyone who died in any place. It says in verse 13 that the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades, that would be the place of the dead, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. But the point is, every dead person is suddenly alive, resurrected to come to face God. This is the crowd this, this is the ultimate destiny for every person. Every human being will stand face to face with God. Every human being. In that crowd, as we find, there will be kings and slaves, homemakers, kingmakers, hedge fund managers, street sweepers, people who lived in poverty that no one ever heard about for thousands of years and people whose names are all across the history books, people of ancient civilizations and modern civilizations, people who know what an airplane is and people who barely know what a wheel is, all of those people will stand before God's throne. They will, they will be there, one great mass of humanity, in our mind, seemingly Endless and infinite, but dwarfed in comparison comparison to the infinite one that they are facing. Listen, this is the terminus, the end, the result of all people. They will stand face to face with God. That's what this passage is saying. And this is the great reason for our life. This is the great preparation. This is the ultimate moment for which every day exists. It's to be prepared for this moment. This is the great, if I can put it that way, the great test. This is the great final. This is the great moment. All of the other moments, they they lead up to this moment. The facing of humanity before it's God. Those are the crowds. Then we get to the books. It says in verse 12, and books were opened. 
It says the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And it repeats it. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. To the horror of the assembled crowd, books will be brought out with a record of every deed of humanity. The dead will be judged according to what they have done. There is a, if we can put it this way symbolically, a library of heaven. And in that library, there is a volume for every human being who ever lived. Their deeds have been recorded before God. What they have done, what they have not done, all been recorded. And if you can try to put yourself in that moment, which this passage invites us to do, you can try to imagine the horror when they realize that their deeds, their own deeds, will be revealed in the presence of God, have been known by God. This is meant to invoke a kind of shuddering fear of the Lord because the the lie that our deeds are hidden of God, that even as the, the psalmist writes that, that the wicked think, well, no one sees, no one perceives, no one is aware. Well, this passage says, no, no, quite the contrary. God is aware. God has recorded them all. They are all recorded. Books were open. Try, try to feel the horror of that moment. There is no refuge. There is no government. There is no appeal. There is just God and people. And then the record of their deeds is unrolled in front of God. Now, there could be no greater horror. We we have to get this very clearly. There could be no greater horror for sinful, unreconciled humanity than this news. This is the most horrific news. And, And actually, all terrible news that we get on a daily basis is relative to this news. There is bad news, and there is worst news. This is worst news. To know that your life, your deeds, those in secret, those in public, those you've forgotten about but God hasn't, all of those deeds are are recorded, and, and, and there will be a judgment on the basis of what has been recorded. That's what the passage is indicating. Should be the expectation for every sinful human being. Here surely is the fitting end of all self-righteousness or smug superiority. Every every presumption of Western religious optimism. All of the Western nonsense about I, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad. And all of the false teaching of Hinduism and Buddhism and Scientology and Mormonism. False ideas about prayers to the saints being able to save you. False ideas about how you can, you can work your debt off gradually in a purgatory. All of those ideas will be utterly exposed as false when the deeds of humanity are revealed before the God who has seen it all. This moment means that They will be called to account for all that they have done. Now, I I think just, just just a couple of applications that we should think about here. One is this should actually bring comfort to every victim of injustice in this world. It should bring comfort to every victim of injustice in this world that is not resolved. There will come a day of reckoning. No bad deed goes unrecorded. No deed, however small, however horrific, however overlooked, however ignored by human justice, no deed will not be exposed in these books. But perhaps more importantly, I think there's a warning for every sinner. There's no place here for for self-righteousness. Yeah, finally those bad guys are going to get what's coming to them. No, no, every human being should should take this as the obliteration of all self-righteousness. There's no place for comparison with others or excusing sin because of the sins of others. God does not grade on a curve. 
Or if he does, it's a pass-fail. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or be judged as an idolater. There is no place for self-righteousness before the throne. Now, I, I think we live in an era of self-righteous outrage. If, if you track anything on social media or even comments online, self-righteous is the currency of our age, self-righteousness. It's what people trade in. We, we live in a self-righteous vat of acid and this throne is meant to obliterate that. I can't believe that person would is the most normal thing to say in Western society. That is outrageous, the most normal thing to say. But there's very little woe to me. There but for the grace of God go I. And this is present in the church. It's present in our hearts. It's present in our world. But this throne renders that all absurd and judgeable. We think about justice and this throne and these books that are open. I think it also says something about how, well, what are we to do about justice in this life? I think there's a couple things to say. First of all, in terms of what we do in the meantime, we can't be indifferent to justice, but we also can't be idolatrous about justice. So it's important to just to season aside. When we think about these books, every deed recorded before God, those two paths, I think, don't do honor and justice to this throne. To be indifferent to justice is to forget that every human being will stand before a just God. So if there are real, actual actions that we can do to do justice to those around us, to work toward a just and righteous result for people, whether they be falsely accused or they are in danger and we can protect them, to not do justice is to forget that we will stand before a just God. And it is throughout Scripture stated that God views as wrong those who could do right and do not, who could defend and do not, who could tip the scales of human justice in the right direction and do not. That's viewed as a, a sinful crime in all of, of the Bible. So to the degree that we have the opportunity to do justice in a small reflection of God and we do not, we sin against the God of justice. That's one danger. There could be a kind of indifference. Well, it's not my problem. Well, it, it, it might not be your problem, but if it's right in front of you and you can do something about it, it is your problem. To be indifference when injustice takes place in our world or in our society or in our government. To be careless or, or, or lacking a concern about that in any sense it is, is not in keeping with our reactions, our responses, doing what we have the capacity to do is going to be evaluated on that day. We are not a, a passive actor on this stage. We have some responsibility. Now, for some Christians, that, that might turn into a full-time vocation or career. So we have lawyers and police officers and government officials and judges and people who write law books and people like that. that, that that's wonderful. There might be full-time careers that go towards justice. Others, it, it might just be a, a particular expression of justice. So they're working against sex trafficking or the, the pro-life movement or any number of aspects of justice that they can work towards. Th those are good things that various Christians should all support in a, in a general sense, and some might give themselves full time to. I think there's also a danger of neglecting this throne in idolizing human justice. Because this is the ultimate throne. And nobody who reads this passage to think, yeah, I think I can create ultimate justice on this earth. No, no, no. no. This is the final justice. There's only one who knows it all. God doesn't need witnesses. He doesn't need burden of proof. He doesn't need lawyers. He doesn't need sufficient advanced times of warning and subpoenas. He doesn't need any of that things. He just knows it all and judges it righteously. 
But if we idolize justice, and different is one problem, idolizing human justice is another. We, we idolize human justice sometimes when, when we are so distraught and despairing about injustice in this world that it, it, it sounds like we're neglecting the belief that God will bring all to justice in the end. So there, there can be an internal idolizing. I, I just can't handle that injustice is, is present in this world. And it, it dominates, for some Christians even, it dominates their mental space. Every, every area of injustice, they're, they're think, they can't really do anything about it all, but they're thinking about it all. And they're tracing it all, and they're talking about it all, and they're just living in this kind of constant panic, frantic of, oh, there's another injustice, and there's another injustice. Look, there should be a kind of calm peace in light of this final justice frantic anxiety about injustice, I don't think does honor. God sees it all. God will bring it all to justice. I can't know it all. And if I try, I'll fail to do in my life what God has called me to do. There's another way I think we can idolize justice-seeking and from a human level, and that is when we, we focus on one aspect of justice in this world, and we make that the measure of whether every other Christian cares about justice. Very easy for people to get, they, they have one thing. So for them, justice focuses on sex trafficking or the homeless or the criminal justice system or politics. Pick any one of those. And, and, and they kind of focus up. We need to have justice in this category. And if you're not devoting yourself to this justice, you don't care about honoring God. But, but if everybody focuses on that, what about all the others? And it's a, an illusion that, Everybody can focus on everything infinitely. <laughs> That's just arrogance. So one way to idolize justice is if every person fixates on their one type of justice and then demands that everyone else is measured based on that one pursuit. No, there should be a, a, a humbling recognition. God and God alone brings all injustices for all of history we can't even solve one type of injustice in one moment in time, let alone all types of injustice in one moment of time, let alone all types of injustice in all moments of history. There is only one who can do that. So we shouldn't be indifferent to justice. We shouldn't idolize injustice. And, and both of those are helped by remembering, keeping our eyes on God's throne. I, I think, and you know, many conversations online, how do we help various problems in the world? Look, those conversations are good and right in that they call people to action, but sometimes they neglect remembering God's throne. God and God alone will bring justice to this world. And because of that, we better not be unjust in our lives. We better not be indifferent, because <laughs> this is our God as well. But, but neither should we be idolatrous as if we can take his place. He will bring every deed to judgment and every secret thing, whether good or bad. The books, I think, bring that to mind. Now, this these books, the throne, the crowd, the books, they, they should be a horrific moment for a non-Christian. Because if, if you're here or you're listening and you're not a Christian, this means that God has recorded every deed you've done and everything you haven't done, and you will have to give an account for those deeds before God. And I've mentioned again and again, I, I don't say this to exaggerate the reality. I say this because this is the reality. I say this in the way somebody who knows the track is out tries to wave down the train. They're not exaggerating. They're not being hyperbolic. They're not being a crazy religious nut. They're just saying there's actually no track there. And you actually will go over the side if you don't stop. Listen, you will, every one of you, and everyone listening, you will face God. You will face God, you will stand before him, and he knows everything you have done. This is not exaggeration. This is not religious myth. This is the future. You will face God, and if you do not have salvation by that God, you will face an accounting from that God. So it's a horrific moment for a non-Christian, I think it's also a sobering moment for the Christian. Christians often will ask of this passage, well, wait, 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 wait a minute. 
will my deeds, are, have they been recorded before God? How are we to think about that? Am I going to stand before God in some sense? Well, in some sense, yes. In some sense, we will give an account to our God. You read this elsewhere. For example, in Romans 14, 10 through 12, Paul writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So each of us will give an account of himself to God. Or, for example, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For, listen to this phrase, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So there, there is a sense in which even Christians are going to stand and give an account of their lives to God. Now, it is very important to state that in that accounting for the Christian, there will not be any fear of condemnation. There will not be any fear of, there will not be, it's not as though in that moment there will be uncertainty about whether the Christian is no longer allowed to be a Christian, that there will be a salvation. However, it's important to note that there will definitely be people on that day who died with a false optimism about their relationship toward God who will find out on that day that they had no relationship with God. So this passage is meant to not to bring terror and fear to genuine Christians, but those who merely presume that some statement they made at some earlier point in their life that they haven't thought about, that they haven't followed God all those years, that they have no relationship with God, they've done a few religious Christian things, that's, this is not meant to be anything other than a terror to that person. Because the deeds of a Christian should show at some level the grace of God in their life. But for true believers... Though our lives will in some sense be accounted for before the Lord. They will be forgiven sins and commended good works. Anthony Hokema says it this way. The failures and shortcomings of believers will enter into the picture on the day of judgment. But, and this is the important point, the sins and shortcomings of believers will be revealed in the judgment as forgiven sins whose guilt has been totally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think that it's in order to make that point that John interrupts himself with the most precious part of this passage. I've told you before that you want to notice in the Bible when the Bible, so to speak, interrupts itself. When it, when it could have just progressed, but something kind of got inserted. That wasn't an accident. That wasn't a post-edit. Uh, God does it on purpose. Re read your Bibles and notice this just for a second. Notice how the beginning of verse 12 and the end of verse 12 could just be read as one sentence and it would make tons of sense. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, skipped to, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Doesn't that seem like a totally normal, like if you were an English writer, wouldn't you cross out the book of life thing? It's like, no, no, you can't insert ideas. You, you, your paragraph should be one complete thought. That's what my teacher told me. One complete thought. And what is the insertion here of the book of life? Talk a different paragraph. But John interrupts himself intentionally in order to make a point. It's almost as though for the believer into the midst of this terrifyingly horrific scene, he wants to insert this glorious diamond of reassurance. He says, books were opened, and I'm going to talk to you about those books and what's in them. The dead are going to be judged by them, by what they had done. But before we even get there, I don't want you to have any question about this. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Try to put yourself, one of the joys of Revelation is you have to use your imagination a bit and put yourself in this, this scene when 
<laughs> the gathered dead of humanity from Adolf Hitler to your great-grandfather and everyone in between is standing there before God and books are brought out and it's very clear these are the books of all of the sins of all of humanity. Everyone has a volume with their name on it and then another book is brought out and names are read from that book. Imagine that you're there in the crowd and you hear your name read. What is that going to be like when you are very aware that there's a volume of sins with my name on it and insufficient good deeds that rightly could send me with this crowd into that judgment that is waiting just on the other side of this cliff and instead I hear a name read out of the book of life. This book of life is described in chapter 13, verse 8, as the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. This is the Lamb's book. This is the book of the purchased ones. This is the book of the redeemed ones. This is the book of those whose many deeds were nailed into Christ himself. This is the book of the beloved ones. This is the book of those chosen by God's electing and redeeming and saving grace. This is the book of life instead of death. Not life because of our good deeds. Life in spite of our bad deeds. This is the book of life and it is read out that those whose names are in this book escape have you ever had one of those moments where you get into a situation and in that situation you realize mm, this situation would be so much better if I had that thing that it would have been easy to get at one point, but now that I don't have it, it's going to be a big mess. It's going to be a major problem. So one time I had a family member who was traveling out of the country, and lots of preparations were made. Things were packed. Things were prepared. Plans were made. Lists were checked. But then having gotten out of the country, they realized, I don't have my passport. I don't have my passport. That's a problem. Of all the other things I have, I don't have the one thing I need. And now that I am here, that is a problem. That is a problem. It would have been easy before. Now it's a problem. And particularly if you go and you are standing before this very stern agent and he says, hand me your passport and you have none, that is a problem. Now, in this world, that's a solvable problem. But in the moment, that's a problem. Or if your tire goes flat way out in the middle of some deserted desert and you have no spare and you have no phone and you have no way to fix this problem, you think, if only I had before, it would have been easy, but now it's a problem. Or you didn't charge your phone exactly when you needed it to be charged. You know, there's lots of moments like that. All those moments are just little hints and reminders from God. There's a big moment like that coming. Because in this moment, if your name isn't in the book of life, there is nothing to do but to face God's judgment. But for those whose names is, are in the book of life, what a glorious moment. What a relieving moment. What, what a, what a tear-stained Dreaming with joy and rejoicing. What an exulting. Look, in this moment, there's not going to be any fear of man or worry about how you come across. I would imagine in this moment when names are read, there's going to be leaping and dancing and rejoicing because for true Christians, they go into the end examining their souls and thinking, I, I, I believe, I, I trust in Jesus, but I see many of my sins. And even the best of believers has some battles with assurance. So in that moment, when the ultimate assurance is declared. There is your name in the book of life. Your confession of Jesus, your followership of Jesus, it is recorded right here and I am bringing you out of this crowd of judgment. 
because Jesus died for your sins. God reads the names of his people out of a crowd doomed to wrath. You, John, redeemed by the Lamb. You, Dean, redeemed by the Lamb. You, Robert and Crystal and Brian and Aaron and Lori and you, redeemed by the Lamb. What a moment that's going to be. It's meant to give a fresh determination to cling to our confession of Christ. Christ, our hope in life and death. Christ alone, our hope of life of death. Being in the book of life as revealed by our confession of Christ as our Savior and Lord. That is what my life is about. Because at the end, I don't care what else you packed. That's the only thing that's going to matter. I don't care what else you got going for that trip, what kind of job you had, what you did in terms of raising your children, what you did in terms of your car or your house or your track record in school or your appearance or how fit you were on that day. That is the only thing that you're going to be packing that's going to matter, that your life is in the book of life of the lamb that was slain. That light is meant to shape today. That means that being in that book of life should be infinitely more valuable to you today than anything else you got going on. That leads then to the final terrifying symbol, the lake of fire. It says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, I think that's an indication of the removal of death permanently from God's new creation. That that there will be no death in the new heavens and the new earth. Its role, because it was attached to sin, will be judged and removed permanently. This lake of fire is described, as it was described earlier in the chapter, as the second death, a a kind of ongoing death of punishment and ongoing torment that is symbolically described here by a lake of fire. Fire is used consistently in the Bible as an expression of God's wrath. Jesus references the judgment of God as a fire that does not go out. You're cast away from God's presence. You're into conscious torment. That, That is what we call hell. It's described as a lake of fire. There is no sense in the Bible of the doctrine known as annihilationism, where people just cease to exist, or what modern atheists talk about, what, what happens when you, when you die? Well, your synapses stop firing, your heart stops beating, and you blink out of consciousness. Not so. In the biblical testimony, you go into unconscious, if you're an unbeliever, an unconscious sleep, your body decays, but then God resurrects your body, and to your horror you find that all of the things you rejected and mocked are real. God is real, and there is no time to repent, and you are just judged and cast into endless conscious punishment because God actually is that holy and he deserved actually all of those moments that we did not give him. So we have hell, unashamed, direct, plain, given to us in scripture after scripture after scripture that again ought to terrify anybody who is listening or here who thinks that merely by attending a Christian church or having a Christian dad or saying a few songs at one point or I went to youth camp one time. No, no, this this is as real as it gets and there can only be one solution and that is having your name in the book of life. So that when Jesus offers salvation, And we and other authors would rightly ask the question, salvation from what? Salvation from that. An endless, eternal, conscious suffering rightly given to those who defy God and reject Jesus Christ. Salvation from that. 
That's why it's good news. There are cast the sexually immoral, the malicious, those bound up in bitterness, the unforgiving, the idolatrous, the misers, the disobedient, the rebellious, the lustful, the angry, those caught up in dark and evil pursuits. There they go, who have not cast their sins at the feet of Jesus Christ. This moment should light up our life. How easy, listen, my dear friends, how easy to think of being a Christian as following a certain set of moral guidelines and being respectful towards a certain set of mythological Christian beliefs. How different to be a person who says, this is all true. And to live in light of it. To speak in light of it. To parent in light of it. To relate to your spouse in light of it. Your job in light of it. Your house in light of it. Your future in light of it. Your retirement in light of it. Your Wednesday in light of it. Your car crash interaction with the police officer and the guy who hit you in light of it. All things in light of this. It should light up all of our moments. It should comfort us when we face, and all of us have or will, unresolved earthly injustice. It should comfort us. We either have or we will. Somebody that we know or respect or will face some kind of earthly injustice, but that will be brought out on this day. And we can leave it to the Lord if we can't do anything about it. It should motivate us when we're tempted to sin and think that no one sees Even as a believer, the Lord sees. He forgives, but he sees. It should remind us to stand up for justice where we have opportunity to do so. If you're a parent, and can I just, I want to make a personal appeal to every father in here or listening, and mothers as well, but I want to speak specifically to father. You have been called the head of your household for a reason. You are responsible to make sure your children know that you believe this is absolutely real. You are responsible to live in such a way that they know you think this is real. We are responsible to bring this reality into the kitchen table conversation with all of its exhilarating offer of grace and all of its terrifying fear of the Lord. We have a particular responsibility to bring that in age-helpful ways to them. It doesn't take being a Bible scholar. It doesn't take being an academic genius. It just takes faithful, consistent declaring of what is true so that the Father's voice is resounding in the ears of those children long after the Father is gone so that they hear him saying, look, what is most important to your dad? What is more important than how much money you make, what college you go to, how you do in the next game? What is most important to me is that you are ready for this moment. I care more about that than anything else, and it doesn't come close. Most likely, I have a brief time to tell you the truth about this, of a God who is unbelievably gracious and kind and self-sacrificing in order to offer salvation, but who is also terrifyingly holy towards those who reject him. And a father ought to say that in 9,000 ways over those 18 years. Mothers, make it as easy as possible for your husband to do that. Be as encouraging as possible when he seeks to do that. It is not nearly as important what exactly the pattern of communication is as it is that it gets said. Fathers, this, this is our role more than anything else more even than providing and protecting, this is our role.
it's a privilege because this moment hasn't come yet and we've been given a few humans we have a particular responsibility to tell the truth about too. Listen, sometimes parents think about it backwards. They think, I ruined my kid because I wasn't a good parent. Listen, (laughs) every human being is on a train track. They're blowing the whistle, going away from God as exuberantly and passionately as they can. What parents are called to do is to stand on the track and say, don't go this way. Now, they might go anyway, which is grievous to parents. But it's not like they're headed towards God in heaven and all of their godliness, and somehow you derailed them. The reality is we were all headed towards the other direction, and you're there saying, no, go this way. Go towards God. Turn off on this side track called salvation by Jesus Christ. This way leads to death. It leads to hell. It leads to endless agony. And whether you die at nine years old of a horrific childhood tragedy or 99 years old of old age, what's the difference of 100 years, give or take, between facing God as Savior and facing God as judge? That is parenting. I think this passage should also fill us with a mercy for those around us, for our families, for our neighborhoods who will face this moment, that we should long and be eagerly longing that they would see in us a joy, that that they would be those who are forced to come to us and say, "How how do I explain your life? And that in that moment, we could then say, well, I, I can explain my joy, it's because I've been saved from the judgment of God. And brothers and sisters, it should amaze us that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will stand before the throne as one redeemed to the wonder of angels and men. And you will escape the terror of that moment and be brought in to the rest of this book which describes the joys of the people of God. That light should light up your days right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift our eyes to you and by faith we see your throne. And there in the midst of that throne, as your word says, we see Christ standing, still revealing the marks of his death on our behalf. We see our assurance. We behold him there. And because, Lord, we have confessed him, we believe by faith that our names are in this book of life. And, Lord, humbled by that, And grateful for that, we express fresh trust in you. Lord, for anyone here who has been going about in the choppy waters and ignoring this light, Lord, I pray that in your kindness you would draw them back. Draw them back to this light, that they would live in light of your eternal throne. Please do that, I pray. In Jesus' name.